All right. Hope you guys are doing well. Um, it's never a good sign when uh, I hear that there's a sunrise group. Um, but there's a that reminds me that there was this uh, funny story from just this morning. I was hanging out in the uh, staff room, and uh, two of the youth advisors or small group leaders, uh, they were just conversing and reflecting upon the days when they went to uh, youth and college retreats, right? So they came up through a Lighthouse's youth ministry and they were part of Beacon and they were reminiscing and then one of them said to the other, yeah, those Sunday sermons were especially hard to stay awake in, but um, particularly in Beacon. And I was just standing there. I was like, oh, that's nice. You know, <laughs> the Lord bless you too. Um, but yeah, if you feel yourself uh, struggling, that's okay. There's no longer any condemnation in Christ. I'm sure that's what that verse was intended for. But um, it has been a joy to be able to be with you uh, this short weekend to get to know some of you guys a little better or to meet um, some of you for the first time. And I think the unique thing about... Um, this opportunity for me is I'm one of the pastors at Lighthouse and so I look forward to developing a relationship with you guys so uh, don't be intimidated say hi um, if you see me at church on Sunday or uh, in any of our other events and I look forward to catching up and getting to know you guys better and so uh, with that let's pray for the Lord's help and we will get into our last session let's pray Father, you are indeed so faithful and good to us. Lord, you are one who is mindful of us, who cares for us, and it leaves us bewildered to know that you would send your son for us, that we might be reconciled to you, to have a relationship with you, and to not only be imparted the gift of salvation and eternal life, but then to be called to a greater purpose to live for the glory of our master, to participate in your kingdom by entering in and then by inviting others to do so as well. We pray, Lord, because we need your help, that oftentimes we are prideful people and we appropriate what you have done, what you have graciously given to us as if it is our right, our boasting point, and so we ask that as you whittle away any arrogance, any hardness of heart, you would remind us again what a joy it is to know you and then to serve you. We pray for your help. In Jesus' name, amen. We're going to be in Haggai 2 this morning. Haggai 2, verses 10 to 19. Uh, now, where we are in the book, things are kind of on the upswing. And so as a nation... Uh, the Israelites have repented of their previous mistakes. They've reprioritized God. They've started to rebuild His temple. But as they dive into this construction project, they're prone to forget that in the busyness of building, they begin to conflate what they do with who they are. What they do with who they are. I think we often struggle with this too, right? But as the Israelites are stacking stone upon stone, it gets to their heads. They think to themselves, we must be a holy people. Why? Because we are doing holy work. Instead of seeing their labor as their privilege, as God inviting them to share in His work, 
They are congratulating themselves for a job well done. Man, God must be so pleased with us. He's so lucky to have such willing and skillful workers. And left unchecked, their pride will fester into entitlement. God must be so pleased with us, soon deteriorates into God must owe us. Jackpot. Their obedience to God must obligate then his blessing. And maybe you can hear their thoughts in your own. But the truth is, no one does God favors. We have no grounds of boasting when we participate in his kingdom. It is grace that brings us in, and it is God's grace that keeps us going. And so for our last session together, we're going to take a closer look at kingdom purity. Kingdom purity. Where priorities inspire us to start kingdom work or to adjust our lives to do so, where perspective encourages us to continue in kingdom work even when we're discouraged or it's not panning out how we expected, purity, purity has us examine why. Why we're doing kingdom work. What motivates us in our pursuit? Is it for our own acclaim? Is it to indebt God and others to us? Or is it in humility and joy? Recognize He has been merciful to redeem us, preparing good works for us that we might walk in them. Because in all of our endeavors to serve, obey, and honor God, there is a greater work at stake. You see, God is always more concerned with the state of our hearts than with the deeds of our hands. God is always more concerned with the state of our heart than the deeds of our hands. You force the hands into labor, and that is all you get. But you capture, you compel the heart, and the hands are thrown in. You get hands, feet, and everything as well. Unfortunately, the people have allowed their success up to this point to blind them. And God sends Haggai to correct, yes, but also to restore them. This is now the third message Haggai delivers. It's been roughly two months since uh, the last message, about four months from the first. And the third and fourth messages occur on the same day, but to two different recipients. We won't get to look at the fourth message together, but uh, since you guys are good college students and you love homework, you can study it on your own um, at home when you're back from retreat. But in this third message, Haggai speaks to the priests, to the religious professionals, if you will. And our first heading this morning is the problem of the impure. The problem of the impure. We pick up in verse 10. Haggai chapter 2, verse 10. On the 24th day of the ninth month, in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet. Thus says the Lord of hosts, ask the priests about the law. So we'll, pa- we'll pause really briefly there. Haggai huddles the, the priests together. They are the nation's mediators, religious professionals again. The, these priests represent the people of God before God and God before the people of God. They're experts on the law. And Haggai now uses their expertise to hammer his point, to teach the nation. Verse 12. If someone carries holy meat in the fold of his garment 
and touches with his fold bread or stew or wine or oil or any kind of food, does it become holy? The priest answered and said, no. So according to Levitical law, when people sinned, a sacrifice was required. You know this, there are consequences for your actions. If you get a speeding ticket, you have to pay. And for the Jews to make restitution, the people would present an animal as an offering to the Lord. That on behalf of the person, the family, or the nation, the priest would then take this unblemished lamb or bull and slaughter it. The shed blood, the loss of life, covered, paid for, atoned for the guilty party. And after this ritual, the, the priest would take a portion of the meat to use for other purposes, whether for a presentation or meal. To transport the holy meat, the, the priest would put it in the fold of their garment, and, and these priests were familiar with the procedure. So Haggai presents a scenario, a situation. If that same fold that carried this holy meat, if it came into contact with something else, say bread, stew, wine, or any other food, does this fold make that thing holy? Can a good thing make something good by sheer contact? And the priest answer, no. I mean, I wish this is how it worked, right? Imagine if life was like this. I would stand next to the gym and touch the weight machines and feel myself getting buff. I would sit on Kobe's grave and inherit his transcendent basketball skills. I would shake the hands uh, with as many male models as I could find. And I realize this is making me sound super superficial. Uh, I would also shake Kim Kira's hand, so don't worry. But this is only a dream, because this is not how the world works. And this is not how holiness works either. There's no special godly Midas touch or holy osmosis. Now, Haggai follows up his first question with another, another situation, another scenario. Verse 13. Then Haggai said, if someone who is unclean by contact with a dead body touches any of these, does it become unclean? The priest answered and said, it does become unclean. Then Haggai answered and said, so it is with this people and with this nation before me, declares the Lord. And so with every work of their hands and what they offer there is unclean. According to Levitical law, when you were unclean, you contaminate everything you touched. So if a loved one died or you stumbled upon a dead body, uh, you were deemed ceremonial unclean. It would be inappropriate for you to come before God and worship Him until you took the proper steps to cleanse yourself. So here we have it. Holiness can't be passed on, but defilement can and this dynamic is also patterned in everyday life. We know this, especially in these past couple of years. You know, when someone gets COVID, what do we do? We don't gather a bunch of whole healthy people and surround and embrace this guy saying, our hugs are healing, yay. No, that would be dumb, right? We wear masks. Six feet distancing. We quarantine that fool until they are vid-free. Test, 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 right? Why? Because they're contagious. 
You see, no one catches health. We catch cold. Certain things only move in one direction. This is the way natural life works, and this is also the way spiritual life works. Sin spreads and contaminates. Holiness, on the other hand, does not transfer. Now, why was this such an important lesson? Well, it's because the people's understanding of holiness was too shallow. Too shallow. They had assumed holiness by mere association. If they merely surrounded themselves with holy buildings, holy places, and holy priests, then some of this holiness was bound to rub off on them. If they went through holy motions and they offered holy sacrifices, worked on a holy temple, said holy things, then maybe they would be a holy people. At least that's what they thought. But listen, habits of holiness don't make the heart holy. Just because you clean the outside doesn't mean you're clean on the inside. And that's why Jesus' harshest words are reserved for the Pharisees. They were whitewashed tombs, immaculate indeed, but dead within. You see, their religiosity was only a housing for a lifeless corpse. Motives matter. The why is as significant as the what. We often see this in body language and nonverbal modes of communication when we're trying to ascertain why someone is doing something. I remember coming down the stairs one day and there was a new scale um, just sitting there, right? And so I'm trying to think, oh, is this um, a gift from my wife or is there some sort of subliminal message about my weight here? Right? We're trying to figure out the why. I'm reminded of another story, a funny parenting story. Uh, There was this dad who told his daughter to sit down, and the daughter stubbornly refused. Uh, Just for clarification, this is not my family. You know, my daughter Maddie is pretty obedient and sweet. This story was about a dad and his son. Well, never mind. Uh, Back to the story. So it it was time to eat, and this dad insisted the little girl to sit in her seat. And she wouldn't relent. She was defiant and she continued to stand. And it wasn't until her dad threatened to punish her, to take away her privileges, that she listened. The girl complied with her dad's instruction and at last sat in her seat, but not without sneaking in one last word. And so she raised her fists and pouted. Dad, I am standing on the outside, but on the inside, or sorry, I am sitting on the outside, but on the inside, I am standing. <laughs> and we chuckle because the moral of the story is clear. Being compliant is not the same thing as being obedient. There is a way to listen to someone without really doing so, without really obeying. And that's what these people in Haggai were doing. They acted the part. They played the role, but their hearts were far from God. They may have been compliant to God's commands, but they weren't really obedient to Him. It was just hard to see. It was difficult to discern because they were doing all the right things, good things, godly things even. Chopping the wood, laying the stones. They were working on the temple of the Lord. What more could you ask for? Everything seemed to be in order. Everything appeared to be in place, except the most important thing. 
their hearts. Christian, college students, do you know this? You know, especially in a flourishing fellowship like Beacon, or when you're involved in an on-campus ministry like AA or GOC, association is not enough. Association is not enough. You can come to church, you can talk to other believers, you can wear the Christian apparel, carry a Bible, but that doesn't carry over into your heart automatically. Good works are not enough. Good works are not enough. You can sing the song, serve people, read the word, but that doesn't distinguish you from any non-Christian who does the same exact thing. Right actions can't write impure motives. And it would be a tragedy, a tragedy to surround yourself with citizens of the kingdom without ever entering in. You've probably heard the heart of the matter is a matter of the heart. Holiness only moves in one direction, from the inside out, from the heart to the hands. And when you are impure in motive, it dirties everything. When you are not striving to honor and worship God, it ruins and contaminates even seemingly good deeds. Think of a pirate ship. Okay, so you have a pirate ship. On board, you have this ragtag, despicable group of thieves. And their goal, their aim in life is to hijack other ships and steal treasure. So in order to accomplish their mission, these pirates are given a different set of responsibilities. Some are in charge of washing the deck. Others are on the lookout to search for ships to board. A few are tasked with providing medical aid. Each pirate does his job, and he does it excellently, does it really well. What's more, sometimes these pirates even help each other, right? One pirate covers a ship when another is sick, or a pirate dives in to the water to save a guy who's fallen overboard. These are nice, good, even heroic things. But these good things do not change one crucial fact. That these pirates are bad people. In regards to the law, they are guilty criminals. Their goodness is relative. That's how the Bible describes us. We are like the pirates. Guilty of crimes against God and His law. And sure, we may live life doing relative good to others, but never ultimate good. As sinners, we never do things for God and His glory. You see, apart from the grace of Jesus Christ, everything we do is tainted, stained, and smudged by sin. And in the same, everything these people did was defiled because they were defiled. Now here's the really intriguing part. If these people were right with God, right in motivation, they probably wouldn't be doing anything much different on the outside. They would still be listening to the priests, bringing their sacrifices, working on the temple. The externals wouldn't change much, if at all. Our lives, then, are like fountains. If the water is contaminated, you don't whip out the Brita filter to fix the problem. You've got to go to the source and purify it. That's why Jesus says, clean the inside first, and then the outside will be clean. So the remedy for us isn't necessarily to cease all activity and doing. The remedy is to dig deeper 
to get underneath the surface and investigate what's going on, what's at the heart, to trace everything back. So for example, does your Bible reading cultivate a greater understanding of the gospel? Or is it just to placate a nagging conscience? Does prayer strengthen your trust and dependence on God? Or is it just another habit by which you can point to and say, Look, I'm a Christian. Does serving humble you to look to Jesus for the grace to be Jesus to others? Does all the work in your life spring from an awareness and appreciation of God and His kingdom? And then does it flow back to Him in gratitude and praise? Don't make the mistake. We think we're pure often because of our practice. God wants us to see proper practice is only possible as an outworking of being made pure. That's why when it comes down to it, you can't fix you. I can't get inside of here. Only God can. That's why at the end of the day, it's not about what you do, ultimately, but what God does, what God has done. And look at what God has done to show these people to expose the true source of their problems. We reach our second heading this morning, the pruning of the impure. The pruning of the impure. Verse 15. Now then, consider from this day forward, Before stone was placed upon stone in the temple of the Lord, how did you fare? When one came to a heap of twenty measures, there were but ten. When one came to the wine vat to draw fifty measures, there were but twenty. I struck you in all the product of your toil with blight and with mildew and with hail. Yet you did not turn to me, declares the Lord. So just like chapter 1, Haggai has the people consider. Consider the outcome of your efforts. And surprisingly, God struck the people how? Hitting them where it hurts, where it would force them to wake up. Haggai calls them to examine their lands. The hardships of the harvest communicated God's displeasure. Instead of reaping in 20 measures, they only found 10 Instead of producing measures of, uh, 50 measures of wine, what they expected, it only yielded 20. And the lesson of chapter 1 echoes again. God takes full responsibility. He's the one who sent blight, mildew, and hail. Blight is caused by excessive heat. It dries out the land. Mildew is the exact opposite. Excessive moisture floods the land. And just for added measure, God sprinkles in some hail. Now, think about that. The occurrence of one of these natural disasters, uh, maybe you can write it off, you could chalk it up to chance. But add in another, and you got something strange going on, especially if they're very different, right? But then to have all three should make it obvious. This is not normal. This is not normal. Sometimes the inexplicable can only be explained by God. Do you know what I mean? When things are too coincidental to be chance, it might not very well be. It might be God. In this passage, the weather is God's postal service. Read the mail, Israelites. Why was this happening? Verse 17. Yet you did not turn to me, declares the Lord. 
Providence is a tricky thing, right? In our conservative Bible-thumping circles, we shun reading too much into the signs and situations. We know we're not supposed to use our circumstances to read, interpret our God. Otherwise, we run into all sorts of wacky interpretations and heresies. Oh, well, God can't be loving because He wouldn't allow this to happen in my life. He wouldn't bring this trial or suffering. Or the complete opposite. Oh, God must be really happy with me because I got straight A's and I have a boyfriend. We need to be cautious of such a reductionistic way of thinking about God. Circumstances are unreliable. So we bank on the certainty of God's revealed will in Scripture. Now with those cards on the table, we also need to be cautious of something else. We need to be cautious of swinging the pendulum too far the other direction. Sure, we have to be watchful of assigning too much value to our circumstances, but conversely, we need to be careful of assigning absolutely no value to our circumstances. After all, God has disclosed how life, for the most part, should work. He has stated the norm that those who are faithful, for the most part, will be fruitful. That those who are pure in heart, for the most part, will have their prayers answered. And so, yes, it's not always clear-cut case. Not always an unbreakable cause and effect. But let us not forget that our God is a God of order. He's not trying to confuse us, throw us for a loop by rewarding our sin and punishing our obedience. He has prescribed a general pattern as shown in the scriptures. But the danger, the danger is when we try to exploit the system and manipulate God. There is no hidden cheat code where we think, okay, I'll just keep pressing this obedience button and the blessing should come. There will be blessings galore. This is where the people went awry. They weren't just wrong about their practice of holiness, but also expecting the payoff for their holiness. Right? 50 measures of wine. We want 20 measures of grain. They assumed if they had followed the rules, they would reap the rewards. And I think if we're honest with ourselves... Can we be just like them? We might not express it in those terms, but in our hearts, we're just in it, just obedient for the benefits. Maybe we want good things even. You know, our parents to stay together, to no longer be single, or to land the perfect internship. And so what do we do? We discipline ourselves in our reading plan. We serve in a ministry. We tie the little extra. We vow to never miss a small group. But secretly, it's because we want God to owe us. But friends, isn't this just a different version of the prosperity gospel? We may not be after miraculous healing in private jets, but are we trying to coerce God? Curry His favor? That was how these people had treated God. In their mind, their obedience guaranteed some sort of reward. But God is never obligated to bless. He is king, not you, not me. Christianity is not Jesus in a bottle where your obedience summons him to grant you your wishes. 
We can never strong arm God. He is gracious. That is the very definition of grace. That is why it is on His terms, not ours. And yet God is kind to say He blesses those who are obedient. Maybe not according to the world's definition or our expectation, but that's how He usually operates. God says He punishes the wayward. Again, maybe not by the world's standards or by our expectation, but that's how He usually operates. So yes, God is a gracious God who treats us better than we deserve. Psalm 103.10 He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. But let us not allow glorious verses like that to make us deaf to others like Hebrews 12.6. For the Lord disciplines who? The one He loves and chastises every son whom He receives. God's grace doesn't do away with His discipline. It actually welcomes it. That He never brings, we must never assume that He never brings about circumstances or orchestrates situations to expose our sin and reprove us. He may very well frustrate your academic ambitions or spoil a relationship because there is unrepentant sin. It may be a time or season of pruning. How do you discern? It's hard. You do so with help from others, with much wisdom from the Word, and humility and prayer you need to consider. Now, some of this is common sense. I mean, is it all that shocking that you feel like God is distant from you when you haven't cracked the Bible open in over a month? Is it all that surprising people don't want to be around you when you're quick to criticize and slow to forgive? No. For the Jews, it just required a little more analysis. But the agricultural conditions were so severe, so thorough and unique, all signs pointed to this conclusion. Something is wrong. God must be upset. But I don't want us to miss the bigger picture. Don't get caught up in your ability and in or inability to pinpoint the precise reason. Even if you can't discern if your predicament is owing to sin or not, the most important part is the end of verse 17, turning to Him. Pruning is not haphazard. It is a method to make room for growth. And so whether it's a consequence of unconfessed sin or a trial God is bringing into your life, our reaction honestly, at the end of the day, is to be the same. We're to seek Him. The worst thing you can do is a wholesale disregard to ignore all the indicators and God Himself. And yet, sadly, I think this is our strategy or MO most of the time. Instead of considering and turning, we're so good at ducking our heads and plowing ahead. We heap on more things to cover up the problem or to busy ourselves instead of actually dealing with the issue. Instead of confessing sin and going to God. I mean, look at where you run to when you blow it. Our reflex is either to justify ourselves or do more. But that is a running to ourselves, not a running towards God. You know, I lied to my teacher, I yelled at my friend. I had impure thoughts. What's the solution? Well, I'll just put in more hours. I'll treat my friend to a meal. I'll do better. I'll pray harder. I'll download accountability software. I'll go to all three church services at Lighthouse. And some of those things, they may be helpful, but they're not ultimate. If you think your effort, your diligence, 
Your discipline is the silver bullet. What are you doing? You are cultivating a works-based righteousness. But God could care less with what you do if you refuse to the one thing He requires. Jesus didn't die on the cross so you could tough it out on your own or pretend like nothing happened and carry on. He died so that you would turn. And that's exactly what it means to repent. You've probably heard this before, but it's the idea of doing a 180. Not just identifying your sin and how you're walking in it, but taking the necessary step to pivot and go to God. God isn't interested in His temple when it's missing what it's supposed to represent. His presence with the people and theirs with Him. And we may do kingdom work and yet fail to worship. And we do this when we attempt kingdom work without the King. But look at the faithfulness of God. God brought about the harsh circumstances to surface their sin and bring them back. Our last heading is a short one. The provision for the pure. The provision for the pure. Verse 18. So he rebukes them, he reproves them, and he's hoping that they will learn from the errors of their way to do right, to seek God. And so he says, this is what's going to happen if you do. Consider from this day onward, from the 24th day of the ninth month, since the day that the foundation of the temple was laid, considered, is the seed yet in the barn? Indeed, the vine, the fig tree, the pomegranate, and the olive tree have yielded nothing. But from this day on, I will bless you. God has brought these natural disasters and has left their field barren. All the main staples of produce are lacking. No vine, fig tree, pomegranate, and olive tree. Do these foods sound familiar to you? Maybe, maybe not. Uh, turn back, actually, a few books to the book of Haggai. Uh, not Haggai. You're already in Haggai. Habakkuk. See, I need to sleep, too. Turn to Habakkuk. Um, it's just two books prior, Habakkuk, Zephaniah, Haggai. So just go two in the other way. This is before the exile, right before Babylonian captivity. And look at what the prophet Habakkuk says at the end of the book. This is a famous passage, right? A favorite of many. And for good reason. Habakkuk 3, verses 17 to 19. Though the fig tree, so there's the fig tree, should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food. The flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls. Verse 18. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God, the Lord, is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on my heart, um, on my high places. And yet, when difficult times fell, the people didn't share Habakkuk's enthusiasm. They didn't rejoice in the Lord. They didn't even remember Him. And so, years later, God brings these difficulties to prick their hearts, to open their eyes. The tough toil was intended to teach them. He was stripping them of everything else so that their confidence, their trust, their faith would be in the king. As disheartening as it is to have nothing, at least they have him. And this lesson could only be learned through the furnace. But now God affirms better days to come. 
This will be the turning point. He closes our passage back in Haggai by saying, From this day on, I will bless you. Have you become so worn out and skeptical that you're callous to these words? Are you so cynical that you're not even bothering? But God has spoken. Take Him at His word. Perhaps you, college students, need to put pen to paper and just write on the 26th day of the second month of 2022, here are the changes I've committed to make. Not because we're trying to manipulate God, but to memorialize His faithfulness, to see how He will work. Sure, we can't force God into blessing us, but we can invite it when we're obedient. We can't earn grace, but we can put ourselves in a better position to receive it. The potter doesn't mold hardened clay because it'll break. But soft and supple clay can be shaped. So examine, consider your days. From this day onward, maybe the reason you're having a tough time seeing God's favor in your life is because you're putting off what you need to do, and you know it. You already know you need to get back into the Word, to spend time in prayer, log out of Netflix, confess your sins to one another, seek forgiveness from someone you've wronged. Maybe the reason you're not growing in your battle against sin is because you refuse to count the cost. To do what is hard, yes, but right. Place yourself in a context to really fight and mature. And mark it down and then see Him work. Because the Bible tells us God is willing. He wants our sanctification more than we do. Do you? I think that's why, while Haggai has many dates recorded, this particular section in Haggai 2 focuses so much on timing. We have the date in verse 10, but even the exhortation to consider in verse 15 and 18 is framed around the day. Right? Consider from this day onward. The Jews were to mark it in their calendars. From this day onward, their situation would be reversed. From this day on, I will bless you. The timing is important because the ninth month was usually when seeds were planted. The people had experienced futility before God promises fertility now. And in this instance, He will prove His presence with His people by blessing them. And we'll close there for our retreat. Because I think our retreat, it's a unique opportunity to again recalibrate, to examine our lives. God provides these instances where we can really grow in our understanding of Him and be refreshed, renewed. As we descend from this mountain and go back to our daily lives, uh, my exhortation, my hope is that we would all consider our ways. That we would examine what it looks like to invest in God's kingdom and not our own. We've looked at kingdom priority, kingdom perspective, and kingdom purity. A lot to consider. A lot to be thankful for. To know that God is with us in this. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you from, for your word, for timeless lessons in such an ancient book that's still pertinent and relevant today. And we pray that it would not go in ear, one ear and out the other, but that we would be doers of your word. 
that we would bask in your grace to us. And that basking would not leave us inactive, but it would propel us forward to be those who pursue you, knowing that even in pursuing you, you supply us with the ability to do so. And therein lies our hope. Our confidence is not in how witty, how disciplined, how relentless we are, but in how faithful and relentless you are. That you care for us, that you commit yourself to us, that we might be a people, a kingdom people, that lives for the majesty and glory of our King. We thank you for all this. In Jesus' name, amen.